My name is Caleb Kubroy, and this is Nightbeat. Tonight, a coronavirus update, music, and the presidential election. That is all coming your way right here. So now, here is your host, Joey Block. Welcome to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. The big news tonight, Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the presidential race after having strong showings in early contests, but performing poorly against former Vice President Joe Biden in the most recent primaries. We'll be having more than that in just a moment, but right now I want to talk a little bit about the coronavirus and how it's affecting Rutgers and all around the world. The current count as of 7.30 p.m. tonight, over 1.5 million cases across the globe, more than 431,000 cases nationwide with over 14,600 deaths. More than 47,400 coronavirus infections in New Jersey with over 1,500 fatalities, as well as 140 cases here in New Brunswick. The effect of the coronavirus has taken shape on our own campus. All on-campus activities and university-sponsored trips have been suspended through August 14th. This includes summer classes and study abroad. Rutgers is also conducting a survey of graduating seniors, asking them how they would like commencement to be held. This comes after the university postponed the commencement ceremony scheduled for next month. A Rutgers surgeon has developed a method of making face shields using a 3D printer. Our own Caleb Kubray will have an exclusive interview later in the hour. On the other side of the world, citizens of Wuhan, China, are out of isolation after 76 days of being in lockdown. Wuhan is set to be where the virus first started, giving hope to some, but the Chinese government warns there are still not completely out of the woods. Today, President Trump said at the White House press briefing that he, quote, learned about the gravity, close quote, of coronavirus, oh, quote, sometime just prior to closing the country to China, close quote. This comes after it was reported that the intelligence community was warned of the virus as far back as November. At a press conference today, Governor Murphy said he signed three executive orders to help stop the spread of the virus. The first ordered the postponement of the June 7th primary to July 15th to, in his words, prevent the disenfranchisement of voters fearing they will contract COVID-19. The second one orders the closure of all non-essential construction projects effective Friday at 8 p.m., with the exception of those related to health care and affordable housing. The executive order also requires all retail employers, employees, and customers to wear face masks, along with the reduction of the overall occupancy in stores. The final order authorizes the weight limits, the increase of weight limits, of trucks carrying supplies that fight COVID-19 on highways. The governor says that this is meant to help get supplies in the state quicker. Over the course of the hour, we'll cover all of the angles of the coronavirus from how it's impacting Rutgers, as well as how it's impacting the local community. WRSU News reporter Anna Varkey has an exclusive interview 
with children's music star Lori Berkner. Chris Sakonis will be bringing us the latest in how Christians are prepping for Easter considering the circumstances. We'll also be talking about this and more throughout the hour. But first, Bernie Sanders, as I mentioned at the top, has dropped out of the race just a day after the Wisconsin primary. What does this mean for the race going forward? We'll be talking about that with political science professor Joe Leo Carney Waterden next. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Joey Block. Uh, the recent news that came out today here is that Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the presidential race, leaving former Vice President Joe Biden to be the presumptive Democratic nominee. To discuss this in further detail with me is political science and law professor Joe Leo Carney Waterden. Professor, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So I want to start off with the obvious news that the Vermont senator dropped out today in an official video statement to supporters. What do you make of the announcement? Is there anything that stuck out to you or maybe the time frame of it? Um, I Well, I think that there I think that you begin to see both in the media and uh, certainly there were a number of news articles that suggested that there was a great deal of pressure being put on Senator Sanders to withdraw. We now know about uh, the rather infamous, and I maintain it was an infamous exchange between Senator Sanders and Whoopi Goldberg on The View. I don't watch the show, but I certain, but it certainly did light up um, most of the Twitterverse, if you will. And in the exchange, she asked Senator Sanders. Uh, when he was going to drop out, pronouncing that there was no path forward for him. And, of course, Senator Sanders uh, responded in the way that I thought was appropriate um, and was an implied rebuke to Ms. Goldberg. But nonetheless, you could tell that it was not simply Ms. Goldberg who were, you know, who were making these particular calls for him to drop out. There had been several individuals doing so. Uh, which I found to be completely um, inappropriate. I said the same thing in 2008 when there were calls for Hillary Clinton to resign from the Democratic uh, nomination process. I said the same thing when there were individuals who were demanding that Mitt Romney withdraw in uh, in 2008 on the Republican side, when there were individuals who were demanding various candidates to drop out now. That is not the point of this democratic exercise, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't surprising to me. I will say this. I thought it was very interesting that Senator Sanders said that he was suspending his campaign. Now, every every candidate says suspend rather than drop out. And the reason why is it's twofold. Uh, they are normally helping to fundraise for future campaign runs. Okay, so Mayor Buttigieg talked about suspending his campaign, and and there are rumblings that he is still continuing to fundraise in anticipation of a future run for office, I guess either on the state level or federal level, I don't know. But the other reason why you do it is because if if you believe there is a chance that you could 
eventually become the nominee, right? And so for most of the candidates, in fact, all of the other candidates, there is no shot in the dark for them. I mean, there's, there's no shot. With Senator Sanders, I do believe that Joe Biden's performance as the shadow leader, if you will, uh, to borrow that phrase uh, from, from Britain, um, the well, I shouldn't say shadow because that would imply he's a part of the cabinet, but the opposition, uh, as the leader of the opposition, supposedly the the de facto uh, the de facto leader or nominee of the Democratic Party and leader of the opposition and the resistance has played to the public rather poorly. Uh, and so I believe that Senator Sanders rightly recognizes that there is a chance that he could very well be called from the dugout uh, to switch in for um, Vice President Biden should the need exist. And there very well could be considering uh, Vice President Biden. Yeah, yeah, that definitely is a a point to be made there. And I want to talk a little more in detail because you said about this idea of suspension that Senator Sanders actually talked about the fact that he's going to stay on the ballot in a lot of these states so he can rack up more delegates to influence the primary and the convention process. I mean, what what do you make about that? Does this kind of play into the fact that he doesn't trust the Democratic establishment? Um, well, Senator Sanders is open about not trusting the Democratic establishment. He has said that, uh, and, I, and I don't necessarily believe Senator Sanders truly believes this, but I believe that he, I believe that he wants the process, he wants the public to trust the process and to meet it with less skepticism, less cynicism. And so he, he pays lip service to it. But I don't believe that he believes that fundamentally in his heart. Um, but what I do see is Senator Sanders thinking long term, that if he can apply pressure to Joe Biden and the Democratic Party to, to adopt planks in the platform, that will ultimately um, that will ultimately represent the progressive ideals that he is uh, that he's been advocating for for decades. Then I see in that the strength of him staying on the ballot. But I think, if I'm going to be honest with you, Mr. Block, as a matter of as a matter of truth, and this is just me being giving it to you straight, no chaser. All of this about Senator Sanders remaining on the ballot to gain as many delegates so that he eventually so that he eventually can pressure the Democratic Party and the nominee to adopt progressive ideals is bunk. Okay? The reality is is that Senator Sanders sees in Vice President Biden what the what the majority of the public sees and what every free thinking individual sees, and that is obvious weaknesses in his candidacy. And what Senator Sanders knows is, is that if he really folds his campaign at this point, it would be too much to restart that campaign again should he need to step in as a nominee. So it's important for him to keep a very vibrant and active apparatus going. All right? The challenge is, is that the Democratic establishment is going to prop up Joe Biden if they have to pull a strong Thurman. And I don't know how much you are aware of the history of the former segregationist senator from South Carolina, but toward the end of his political career in the Senate, they were literally walking Strom Thurmond to the floor of the Senate to take votes. 
because he could not make the trip on his own. The man was essentially a walking corpse, a rubber stamp. And there is concern amongst progressives. There are concerns amongst independents that Joe Biden does not have the mental faculty and fortitude at this point to really be a leader and that this will essentially be a cabal-led administration. Senator Sanders knows that. And let's be real. He's going to play to that. He is going to remain in the wings awaiting, awaiting to be called in the event that Joe Biden has one of those major episodes where, unfortunately, he is unable to continue as the nominee. So you kind of mentioned this idea about Biden being a favored candidate um, in the race. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the DNC in general. In 2016, there was a lot of criticism that they were backing Hillary Clinton. There were even emails released of um, them criticizing Senator Sanders' faith and Catholics and pretty much um, that they were in for Hillary the whole time. And a lot of people made that assertion about Joe Biden this time around. Do you think the DNC rigged the contest in favor of Joe Biden? I don't believe that they rigged the contest in favor of Joe Biden. What I do believe is, is that various power brokers within the establishment of the DNC were certainly working things behind the scenes. There, were, there was no question whatsoever that just before the Super Tuesday the Super Tuesday elections. There was no question whatsoever that the that the mass exodus of candidates from the race who all came out and endorsed Vice President Biden had received word from individuals within the party. And I have no doubt because I know how these intra-party situations work. I have seen them up close for myself. And I know that a number of them, I know, I know that Mayor Buttigieg, I know that Andrew Yang, I know that the young guns on the stage, the Tim Ryans of Ohio, they all received the word that, A, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, you have a definite role to play in the cabinet. It will be a visible one. And if not that, you will have a definite role to play as a prominent featured face in the future of the Democratic Party. So there's no question that from that angle, there was strategizing against Senator Sanders, which is completely legal. And frankly, it's completely ethical. The challenge is, is that it is not, it is not in my opinion, democratic. It should not be because of the strategic actions of a few behind the scenes, of which I include Senator Obama. We know that he was making phone calls. It is not right that they are able to strategize against the candidate while publicly telling people that they have no thumb on the scale. Right? We know you are. We know you're doing that. So for me, it was interesting to see how it was playing out. It was interesting to see. President Obama weigh in. I have my thoughts on why he did so. Um, they're not nice, but I have my thoughts on why he did what he did. 
Um, and uh, it revealed another side of him that uh, – well, no, I take that back. It confirmed for me um, something that I had long since believed about President Obama. And um, no, Bernie wasn't cheated in the traditional sense of the word, but there was certainly a whole no – there was a pinnacle of operators working behind the scenes to ensure that it was vice president. And much of this, let me just say this, Joey, uh, I'm going to say this. Much of it is because they believe is that there is going to be a mass defection of Republicans who will vote for Vice President Biden as a safe choice versus President Trump. Let me be clear. If you are under – if they are operating under the mistaken impression that Bill Crystal or that uh, – or that uh, – uh, well, I can't even – Jennifer Rubin or Reynolds, Tom Reynolds, or any of these very vocal never-Trumpers are representative of the mass of Republicans you will need in order to – in order to successfully win, they're sadly mistaken. They are sadly mistaken. But that, that's that. And feel free to ask me about President Obama at either in this show or later one. I'm happy to share at this point. I feel very liberated to do so at this point tonight. Well, speaking of Obama there, there's been a lot of criticism of the fact that he hasn't endorsed Biden up to this point, considering he was his, Biden was his vice president for eight years they were good friends they had good camaraderie but he chose to not endorse anyone at all is that concerning that the fact that president obama did not come out publicly and endorse biden earlier and he hasn't even to this date um it, it doesn't concern me because i know that senator uh, senator or excuse me i know that president obama was holding his powder on an endorsement of a candidate until he was in a prime position to do so. Every move I believe that President Obama has made throughout this nominating process, and don't be fooled, Joey, he has been active in it, just simply behind the scenes. We'll know the extent of it in years to come. But behind the scenes, he has been active in pulling levers. We know of at least two conversations that he had. We know that he reached out to Mayor Buttigieg and had a very straightforward conversation with him. And we also know that he had a uh, we also know that he had a conversation with uh, he and uh, Secretary Clinton had a conversation with Elizabeth Warren. There is no question in my mind, no doubt, that President Obama is waiting for that prime time speaking slot at the DNC convention where he can make a grandiose statement about the nominee. And I promise you this, if I'm wrong, I'll come on your show and admit it. But President Obama will make that entire speech about his legacy and why the eventual nominee, and this will be an implicit demand of them and command of them, will continue with that legacy. In other words, what he is going to do is flip that middle finger of that progressives and let them know this is my party. It's mine. I am kingmaker. I will have put this nominee on the stage, 
and the nominee will do what is in the interest of the legacy of the Obama era. It will not be anyone else's show, which is part of the reason why I believe that President Obama, beyond being able to read the tea leaves concerning the electability of Sanders uh, or the challenges presented there, I primarily believe that his opposition to Sanders came from the fact that Sanders was looking to transform the Democratic Party fundamentally in a way that would have invited open and continued criticism of his administration and would do to him what he did to Bill Clinton, who prior to, who prior to him was the DNC kingmaker. I think that's exactly what the motivation was. And folks are not willing to say that out loud, but this professor is willing to put it on the record today. That's my sense. President Obama is waiting for his primetime spot. He will be the star of the DNC convention, not Joe Biden. And that's when he will make his formal endorsement. He will do so in some sort of written statement before, but the major endorsement will come at the convention itself. Now, speaking of past predictions you've made to me, the last time you and I talked, Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. was on the rise. He was doing great yeah. in early contests. Um, in fact, you even said it would have been he was a guy to be reckoned with, and it would be interesting if it was him versus Trump, considering they were both populist um, figures and they had a lot of energy in both their bases. What did Bernie Sanders do wrong that that went off the rails? Is it necessarily something like you're talking about that it was all Democratic Party establishment saying we don't want this guy? Or do you think voters were generally turned off by Sanders once they got to learn more about him? I don't think that I don't think that the latter part mattered. I think what happened was that Sanders was a victim of a very crowded, uh, a very crowded primary field where you had so many candidates on the so many candidates in the in the field peeling off uh, delegates. I believe wholeheartedly that this was that if there were no Mayor Pete, if there were no Elizabeth Warrens on the stage, if there were no Andrew Yangs, if there were no uh, Beto O'Rourke, if there were no Kamala Harris's or, or any of these individuals, if they were not on the stage, this would be a barn race finish, right? It would be it would come down to the convention and it more than likely would not be you more than likely would not have seen a nominee on the first ballot because I don't deny that there was there was strong opposition to Sanders. And that those are the votes that Vice President Biden would have collected. But I do believe that what hamstrung um, Bernie Sanders was literally the split in elect in delegate votes. It was the fact that he could never command them as the alternative choice to Joe Biden, right? And that was really what was at stake. Nobody truly believed that Elizabeth Warren was ever going to win the nomination. Nobody believed that. Nobody believed that Mayor Pete was going to do so, except for the one black person who worked for his campaign. Nobody believed that Andrew Yang was going to get it. Nobody believed that anyone else on that stage had a viable shot to win the nomination except for Vice President Biden and Bernie Sanders for completely different reasons. I maintain that but for those candidates backing out of the race when they did just before Super Tuesday, 
Bernie Sanders would still be in a prime position. I believe that. I believe that the gap that Vice President has, that Vice President Biden has made since Super Tuesday, the horrible, the horrible cave speeches and interviews that he's doing from the bunker of his house, the allegations about the sexual assault, all of these things, if they took place prior to Super Tuesday, with no other candidates in the field, Vice President Biden would be in the position that Senator Sanders is today talking about suspending his campaign. Now, I want to move... It's unfortunate. Mm. Uh, I want to move a little more towards uh, President Trump and how this the race is post-Sanders. Now, many polls have Biden ahead of Trump, despite the president having record approval ratings. What do you say see playing into these polls, as well as the ones that have President Trump up? Okay. Um, the... The one thing to note is is that in 2016, uh, so I can approach it this way. Here's the good and the bad uh, for President Trump. The good is is that compared to 2016, Hillary Clinton was leading the president by double-digit numbers at this time in the race. In the real clear politics average of races in 2016 in April, she was leading the president in a head-to-head matchup by approximately eight to ten points on average. In the primary, in the major polling, the major polling outlets that we normally look to, she was there by ten to twelve points. Compare that to where Vice President Biden is right now, and that is that. Vice President Biden is leading President Trump by, on average, five to six points, on average. In the major leading polls, at most, he is there by eight points. There is one or two that I looked at the other day that have him ahead by 10, but those at this point, as Nate Silver has said, are truly outliers. The majority of polls have him leading by six. Now, you think about that. If President Trump was able to close the gap as he did with Hillary Clinton, to cut that lead in half, right, by the time that you get to election. And remember, it's not the, it's not the national polls that matter. It's the battleground states that matter. If he was in striking distance of Hillary Clinton on the day of the election, when she has that kind of lead, what can we say about Vice President Biden? Okay, so that's the good thing for Trump. The bad thing for President Trump is that he has the power of incumbency. He should be leading, as past presidents were, going into the election season. He should be leading. Okay? The fact that he is not, even with his highest approval rating ever, even with all the polls showing that the vast majority of the public would prefer – not the vast majority, but the majority of the public would prefer to see – you know, prefer him to lead during this pandemic than Vice President Biden, would prefer to see him leading, leading the comeback on the economy than Vice President Biden, trust him to handle China better than Vice President Biden. On all of those major metrics, he is by far, by far the preferred candidate. Yet, the national polls show that. 
the only response, the only answer to that can be that once again, national polling is going to favor the Democrat in a race. The challenge, based on the demographics we have today, the challenge is, is that national polling means diddly squat beyond giving us a snapshot of the flavor and mood of the nation at the time. The real focus should be on the battleground states, and in all of those contests, Joe Biden is not sitting pretty for all of the anger and fervor that is said to be behind his candidacy with Democrats who say, I want this president out. So that's the good and bad for President Trump. Now, you spoke a lot about how the pandemic is affecting things. Do you think the fact that the president is on TV every day talking about the pandemic is helpful to him? Or is it the fact that there's these reports coming out from the New York Times of the fact that they had prior knowledge to this back in November, at least members of his administration did, and that we were underprepared? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll handle both of those in turn. The very first thing uh, with regard to President uh, Trump, a former student of mine, Brandon Tamari, uh, texted me before uh, a week before the president started holding his weekly addresses. And he said to me, Professor, I think the best strategy is for the president to hold fireside chat like President Roosevelt did during the Great Depression, to engage the public daily, to give them updates, to reassure the public at a time of panic. What the president has done for himself is he has shown the public that he is not the evil individual that they come home from work to hear about on the nightly news, right? That he's not the individual that the late night hosts say he is. On average, the public has rather enjoyed him. And so in that regard, he's acquitted himself reasonably well. I won't say well, reasonably well, because he, he's still up there with the rambling statements and the braggadocio and sometimes rather inappropriate brawls to be having with the media, which I maintain benefits both the media and the president and is a part of a larger strategy uh, for the president. But they have helped him in that they have helped to humanize him beyond what was actually stated or beyond what the most of the public knows about him. It also helps that he is flanked by two individuals to whom the public has imputed a great deal of goodwill, uh, both doctors, Fauci and Burks. It is, it's wonderful that he has that. As far as the issue of whether Joe Biden will be able to effectively use the president's slow response to it. There are several issues with that. The problem for Joe Biden is, is that if he comes after the president, there is going to be a firing squad in his direction because we know that Joe Biden was on the record as saying that the president's decision to halt travel from China, specifically Wuhan, the Wuhan region, was an act of xenophobia. It was an act of racism. 
it shouldn't have been done, and that if he were implying that if he were president, he would not have done that, right? And we know now from Dr. Fauci that that was indeed a, a, uh, an inspired decision. As it relates to what the president knew and when he knew it, the question isn't whether he knew that there was an outbreak in China. The question is what was the CDC and what was Dr. Fauci and what was the National Institutes of Health saying at that time? And what Dr. Fauci revealed, I believe it was last week, middle of last week or early of last week, Dr. Fauci said, look, the best information that we had was based on the numbers that we were getting from the World Health Organization and from China, and both of those entities were giving us what we now know to be false information. First, the WHO is saying it's, there's no human-to-human contact available or, or possible. China is telling us that the numbers of the dead are a lot less than what we eventually found it out to be. So we presume that it could be manageable or that it was manageable despite everything we were being told. And the video clips of Dr. Fauci saying just that are there. The media itself cannot even help Vice President Biden in this regard because we know a number of them were taking the line of Vice President Biden that President Trump's travel ban to China was this contrivance. It was a a bigotedly inspired policy that you have no more to fear from the coronavirus than you do the flu. Go about your lives, particularly in New York with Mayor de Blasio and uh, and, and the borough president uh, near uh, Little China, or, you know, to encouraging people to celebrate the Chinese New Year's in mass. There's nothing to be concerned with. Don't pay attention to the bigot in the White House. That's the challenge is that those individuals who are maintaining that the president is has, quote-unquote, blood on his hands don't realize how much of it they share. And I'm one of those people who is very fair, as I was to President Obama, as I was to President Bush, as I was to President Clinton, although I was too much of a child with President Clinton, but definitely with the prior two or previous two presidents, I'm very fair. The American government is a behemoth of an institution. It is not known for being quick off the mark. But once the, once the full weight of government gets behind an initiative, it is known for being the best blockers for the American people of any country you will see on earth. I maintain that. So as it was with H1N1 with President uh, Obama, as it was with the smaller terrorist attacks prior to 9-11 with President Bush, once both of them got the full weight of the government going, Osama bin Laden who ran for the hills, and with H1N1, we had a vaccine ready to go within months, not the year and something that we said. So I'm a little bit more forgiving of the president in that regard. And I had the sense based on the polling that came out of CNBC this morning that the public, at least the majority, sensed the same thing. So I got to ask you one final question about the controversy that happened um, at the Wisconsin primary that took place yesterday with many saying it shouldn't have taken place um, due to the safety concerns, including the state's own governor. Um, Based Mm -hmm. on your legal background, do you think the legalities of this situation outweighed the safety concerns? 
Well, the, this is the challenge that most people have is that most people didn't understand the Supreme Court, the issue that was presented to the Supreme Court about this matter. So if I can, Joey, very, very quickly give um, the background to this situation. Here is the primary. What you had was the state election commissioner determining that individuals could submit ballots after the, after the closing date of the primary. So the primary takes place today. The election commissioner came out and said, you can submit ballots up to, I believe he said, seven days after the primary is over. So not individuals who had the ballot and submitted them. It's not about when it was received. He was creating a new rule that allowed for you to actually submit the ballot on the day of election or five, it's either five or seven days thereafter. Well, that he was creating a rule without authorization. So what happened was you had individuals who took this matter to court. Now, mind you, the Wisconsin governor is a Democrat. The election commissioner is a Democrat. Somehow in the media, this was spun as Republicans are simply trying to cut off voting. I don't know where that came from, because from where I was standing, and I was standing there with the progressives who were looking at this situation, we saw this as Vice President Biden attempting to cement his delegate lead and saying, I don't want to wait any longer because I think he was looking at his internal polling and seeing that Sanders was ascending politically because of his gas and poor presentation. And so he was pushing for the Wisconsin primary to take place. Interestingly, you had people like Michelle Obama who were saying, no, it should not have happened. But when the Supreme Court was presented with this, they were presented with what was before the district court judge. The individuals who were pushing for the ballot did ask for an extension. But that's not, they said, okay, let's extend the primary or move the primary to another date. The problem was the district court judge, again, a Democrat appointed by President Obama, he was the one who said, oh, no, the election commissioner's decision is sufficient. The problem was the Supreme Court was not there to look at the alternatives because that's not what they were presented with. They were not presented with, oh, postpone it or, oh, extend it. They were presented with what the judge ruled. And what the district court judge ruled was, whether the election commissioner's decision was lawful, he said yes. The Supreme Court said absolutely not. He did not have the authority as election commissioner to mandate an extension beyond the voting date. That's all the Supreme Court said. They did not pronounce any wisdom on whether that action was right or wrong. They just pronounced on whether it was lawful. Two different concepts. So to me, it's a travesty. I personally believe the Wisconsin primary should have been moved it, or voting should have been extended. 
I don't know why the governor nor the election commissioner did not argue that point before the federal district court instead of asking that the election commissioner's judge, you know, decision be upheld. Both of them could have asked the judge and said, well, send, send an order that says it will be – and that it will be extended or it will be moved, and the Supreme Court would have granted that, would have been okay with it. Why the governor did it, I leave the public to guess. I have my own thoughts, but that's where we were at. There's no controversy here except with the Democratic governor establishment supporting Vice President Biden and a Democratic elected state commissioner, Democrat, supporting Vice President Biden, and why there was no move prior to this to actually extend it or to move the data. That's anyone's guess. I had my own thoughts. That was Joe Leo Carney Warden right there. Coming up, we're going to be having an exclusive interview with a Rutgers surgeon who found a way to make face shields with a printer. A 3D printer, I should add. WRSU Assistant News Director Caleb Kuberite has the full story on that, as well as an interview with the surgeon who's making them. That's all coming up next right here on WRSU-FM, New Brunswick. Welcome back to Night Beat. I'm Joey Block. As the government tries to slow the spread of the coronavirus in New Jersey, the cases continue to rise. Earlier today, Governor Murphy announced the state of New Jersey now has over 44,400 total cases of COVID-19. Here at Rutgers, a surgeon has come up with a way of creating face shields using a 3D printer. Many first responders have been running low on supplies with the rise of cases amid the outbreak. WRSU News Director Caleb Kubere caught up with Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School Assistant Professor Joseph Hanna to talk about how he came up with the idea as well as what he hopes to accomplish. Take a listen. So during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, I wanted to start by asking you about some of the 3D um, printing that you've been doing, I guess, for uh, victims and medical professionals. So what exactly have you been have you been making? Who are they for exactly? Are they for mostly like a majority of people that are afflicted with um, coronavirus or medical professionals or who exactly? There are needs along the, uh, across the entire spectrum, as you've pointed out. There are those, uh, there are patients who have uh, COVID-19 um, that need treatment. And then there are the providers, the clinicians, the physicians, uh, nurses, uh, advanced practice nurses, physicians, assistants, etc., who also need material to get their jobs done and to recover. I've primarily been focused on uh, personal protective equipment for providers because that is the avenue that is most amenable to uh, 3D printing uh, or 3D printing printed manufacturing. So for the last two weeks, uh, using uh, a globally recognized design, I've been making full face shields uh, on my 3D printers. Uh, and distributing them to providers as they ask for them. So when it comes to uh, face shields, why are we, I guess, or why are you starting to make face shields with your 3D printer? We hear 
you know, across the country that medical supplies are definitely dwindling. Um, is New Jersey facing a medical supply shortage or why exactly are you starting to make these face shields now? As with every other state and locality, we are uh, feeling the massive and at times overwhelming demand for supplies. Uh, so New Jersey is no different uh, than any other hard hit area. And so personal protective equipment is in uh, high demand and short supply. Um, Full face shields and eye shields are particularly important for those of us that are on the front line because COVID it appears to be transmitted most readily through aerosols. So if a affected patient coughs or even just in the course of normal breathing, uh, we exhale uh, these aerosols that are full of the virus. And as a provider, if you inhale these, if you get them on your skin, if you get them in your eyes, you're at risk for uh, also becoming infected. So for those of us on the front line who are caring for these patients, having face protection in addition to airway protection, uh, as uh, many of your listeners have heard, these N95 masks and other uh, devices uh, is key to keeping providers safe. Have you been working in conjunction with RWJ or any other organization, or has this been mainly been uh, an independent project that you've kind of headed? It started out as an individual endeavor. However, very quickly, uh, after looking at these 3D designs, I realized that uh, there are limitations on what we can do with 3D printing. Um, and because of that, I reached out to the chancellor's office of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences to see if there was a way to mobilize uh, Rutgers as a manufacturing plant. There are many 3D printers scattered across our university in various engineering labs in our maker space. Um, and if we could harness those, we could uh, markedly increase our productivity. And so through the chancellor's office, a group has been established uh, engineers across Rutgers um, with various specialties and these 3D printers have been uh, brought together and now we're producing uh, full uh, face shields uh, at an uh, increased rate. So do you hope to accomplish um, or should I say do you hope to dwindle I guess like the shortage a little bit and try and mass produce these even more and beyond the university, or is it mainly just going to be a university goal? I mean, ideally, and I, and I think everybody that's involved in these um, grassroots uh, efforts to manufacture needed PPE, uh, ideally we get PPE into everybody's hand that needs it. Now, whether or not we're going to achieve that goal is uh, something else altogether. Right now, we're focused on meeting the needs of our providers because there is a significant shortage. If we reach the point with our manufacturing capabilities and the partners that we're adding to augment our manufacturing uh, capabilities, uh, we would love to help other facilities as much as possible. You know, the only way we're going to get through this is by sticking together and helping one another uh, out as much as possible. Besides expanding the manufacturing process across the university. 
Um, what else do you hope to do with this face, these 3D printed face shield initiative? Uh, do you hope to, um, I guess, like motivate other people to use their 3D printers? Uh, or, or what are some other goals of the project, really? Without a doubt. And, I, and I'm appreciative that you brought that up. The, you know, this is a manufacturing uh, need that scale needs to be considered in. So, for example, uh, and these are just loose numbers, let's make the assumption that I alone were to make these face shields. I can produce right now um, probably about 15 a day. If we factor in Rutgers, we'll make a loose estimate, maybe another 30 printers are added to this uh, capability. Um, we go from 15 quick numbers in my head to maybe 400, 450 a day. Um, on the other hand, there are eight and a half million residents in the state of New Jersey, and if only a thousand of them had 3D printers, and we mobilize those thousand people and rough estimate they're making 10 face shields a day, that's 10,000 face shields. So the scale um, is what we're really after. Uh, and that's why I feel that these kinds of opportunities to talk about the need are so important. If we can mobilize the community um, to participate in this process, uh, it will go a long way towards alleviating PPE shortages. Absolutely. And why is there such a demand for um, PPE and especially face shields? Is it almost like a is it a one time use when people use face shields or is it just that we want to make sure that everyone is getting one or uh, or like what are some other, I guess, factors that are playing into the the shortage currently? Uh, I think some of the things that you've brought up uh, are key issues. So number one, just utilization is substantially higher. For example, in the intensive care unit, on a regular day, non-COVID day, uh, you wouldn't see a face shield in use. There's no need for it. But now... Uh, anytime we go into a uh, affected patient's room and need to do an invasive procedure or any procedure for that matter, we need at minimum or the recommendation is at minimum eye protection and if we're doing high risk procedures, full face protection. So we go from needing zero per day on an average day to many. You know, if these are, if we're talking disposable face shields, perhaps you're, and again, these are just rough estimates. The size of your intensive care unit, the number of patients you have, et cetera, are going to change these numbers. But perhaps you're going through 500 a day in, in the way of disposable face shields. So the, and then scale that up across the nation, it becomes a huge problem and there's no inventory because as a manufacturer, you wouldn't be producing that many face shields on the average day because you wouldn't be able to sell them. Now there's been a, you know, several hundred fold increase in the need. And it is difficult, as you can imagine, to ramp up uh, manufacturing for any one product uh, on such short notice. And when it comes to you know, mass producing these 3D printed face shields. Are there any differences between 
3D printed face shields and I guess regularly manufactured face shields, or do they have just about the same effectiveness? That is um, a complicated question and a very important one uh, that we're all grappling with. There's some guidance from the FDA and the CDC on uh, the design and construction of face shields that provide um, splash protection, which is really what we're interested in. It's a barrier to uh, aerosols and liquids. In there, there's a little bit of uh, flexibility in how an individual manufacturer would design uh, and produce a face shield. Currently at Rutgers, we have settled on a um, design that has been vetted by uh, several um, ministries of health, or I shouldn't say several, at least two ministries of health uh, in other countries. So it seems to meet the basic standards uh, with regards to design. As far as materials, there's significant difference in the materials that we're using. There are different types of plastics. But as best as we can tell, the plastic that we're uh, relying on heavily right now, which is called polylactic acid, um, which is different from ABS, seems to be holding up and working well in the hands of providers. But yes, there are significant differences. And I guess I also wanted to ask um, just about your personal 3D printing. So how did you first begin the hobby? And um, I guess what was, you know, the, the spark that made you say, you know, maybe this is something uh, that I can that I can do to help people, really? Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit. Uh, how did I get into 3D printing? Uh, my oldest daughter, Grace, uh, and I um, are DIYers. And a few years ago, we were uh, poking around uh, looking for a new neat project and we came across 3D printing. We just thought it was incredible uh, and looked really intriguing. So we got our first 3D printer a few months later, a small one, uh, but boy, did we have a lot of fun with it. You know, she, uh, she and I, we made um, uh, lightsabers, functioning ones. Uh, oh, that's cool. things, you know, her younger sister, Lily, wanted a rubber ducky. So we found a 3D design for a rubber ducky and put it on the printer. And, you know, a few hours later, there's a, a nice new yellow duck. So uh, that's how um, uh, I got started. And I've we both had uh, lots of fun with it ever since. With regards to the current uh, pandemic and the crisis that we're facing, it was just natural. You know, I was taking a, a hobby and turning it into something useful for the people around us. At the start of this, we had two 3D printers. And as soon as I saw what's referred to as the Prusa design for the 3D, uh, for the face shield that we're using currently, I, I made a test run. And when I noticed, when I realized that I could make it, it, it was, it wasn't a second thought that I needed to do it. And um, my wife uh, was very understanding and very kind, said, well, you should get another 3D printer so you can increase production. So we actually just received uh, a shipment of a, sec a third printer. She is a very understanding uh, lady. Uh, it's set up in, in our basement, and that has been running for about five, six days now, uh, augmenting our, our output. Now, where we're going to put all these 3D printers when the pandemic is over, I don't know. Uh, there, there are going to be consequences to those decisions. You know, going to work every day and seeing what people's needs are 
um, in addition to my own, you know, it's just a reminder that if there's any way any of us can help, um, and this is really where the grassroots part comes in, we should. And so that's where we stand. You know, it's been great. You know, my friends are wearing these face shields. My colleagues are wearing these face shields. Folks that I don't even know are wearing face shields. And it's not so much that they, they, they might have come from me or come from the Rutgers Collaborative. It's the fact that somebody's got the protection they need so that they then are safe to take care of somebody else. And that's somebody else, to be honest. Those are our friends. Those are our family. Those are our neighbors. I mean, all of us uh, here in New Jersey are unfortunately beginning to uh, see that our friends are affected and getting sick, family members, uh, close acquaintances. Uh, so it's great to be able to help one another take care of each other in this difficult time. Governor Murphy actually extended New Jersey's coronavirus um, public health emergency for another 30 days. I know it's it's a very difficult question to ask, but do you think that there's currently any kind of timeline that you see, um, you know, New Jersey and maybe uh, the Northeast United States coming out of this um, pandemic anytime soon? Or I suppose, what are your thoughts on, yeah, ending this emergency, really? That by far uh, is the toughest question uh, to answer. And I it's probably best for me to defer to experts such as Dr. Fauci on that. And I'll tell you why. It's not that I'm dodging your question. It's that the data um, moment to moment, meaning what our uh, infection rate is, what our admission rate to hospitals looks like, and what our, unfortunately, mortality rate is, those are going to be some of the numbers that begin to help us model where we are in the pandemic locally and when we might predict uh, a drop-off in cases. Very hard to know right now. Um, I believe uh, today may be the first day that we've seen a decrease in the number of positive cases here in New Jersey. Uh, and if that is in fact accurate, uh, that is a good thing. But how that feeds into the models for predicting when we may see a slowdown and eventually resolution to this pandemic, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. So it's hard for me to answer that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I have asked, uh, you know, um, other experts and, you know, they've answered just about the same way that there really isn't an answer to that right now, but we could almost just look at the data and what people are saying from day to day and, you know, do what we can and just hope for the best, really. Exactly right. You know, there's so many factors, you know, things that we intuitively understand but don't necessarily fully appreciate. For example, as the weather changes and average temperatures go up, as the humidity level uh, in the atmosphere changes with that rising temperature, viral transmission will change. Um, uh, in, in what way, how rapidly we're learning. Dr. Hanna, I really appreciate the call. I really appreciate the interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Caleb. I really appreciate the opportunity to um, talk about this so we can mobilize the community uh, to help each other. So thank you very much, and uh, I wish you and your family safety. My thanks to WRSU Assistant News Director Caleb Kubright for getting that interview regarding the 3D printing of face shields.
Coming up next, WRSU News reporter Chris Sakonis will be discussing how Easter celebrations are being impacted with Rutgers religion professor Louis Benjamin Rolsey and how he thinks churches will be affected going forward. That's right here on WRSU FM New Brunswick. Welcome back to Nightbeat. I'm Chris Akonis. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to shut down businesses and public gatherings across the country, Christian leaders find themselves facing an unprecedented challenge. Normally, they'd be getting ready for Easter Sunday. But with their churches closed, they're turning to alternative ways to connect with their congregation. Here now to break this all down is Dr. L. Benjamin Rolski, professor in the Department of Religion. So let me start off by asking, you know, just overall, how are Christian leaders and Christian communities adjusting to these strict social distancing policies around the country? Uh, haphazardly. Um, there really is no kind of one approach to any of it. And that has a lot to do with either denominational uh, histories or even the sort of gridlock political world that we occupy uh, today. Um, it really is a matter of who you ask and also where you look. Uh, places in Asia are adapting differently, Europe compared to the US. Um, what's really become a flashpoint is uh, the sort of relationship between what states are trying to do and then how religious freedom comes into it and how churches at times uh, attempt to meet anyway, despite the fact that there are a number of directives that have encouraged people to not meet. Um, so I know that say, Princeton Theological Seminary has put out a number of official statements uh, reading social distance as a way of deepening one's commitment to Christ uh, and deepening one's commitment to your fellow Christians. Um, so it really kind of depends uh, where you are and what denomination you're a part of, what community you're a part of. It's haphazard, uh, but it's somewhat consistent with each uh, tradition. How does sort of adjusting to a disruption like this compared to, you know, churches that have maybe suffered from natural disasters like hurricanes or tornadoes. Are there lessons that can be learned from that? I think so. Um, yeah, and you're also, you're seeing some of that, and you're also seeing people actually make references to historic uh, sicknesses in the past, uh, whether, and that, again, depends on denomination. So, you know, some people are going back to Paul, uh, looking at how some of the biblical characters are responding to certain things. And then also, um, I think I happened upon a number of groups or denominations looking back to uh, different instances of the flu. Um, and in particular, I think something in the early teens, perhaps the Spanish flu of some iteration, and trying to figure out how Christians reacted in that moment as well, actually, depending on how you're interpreting it. Um, some Christians, uh, some Catholics in particular, reference that period as a bit of a golden age of, you know, look at this calamity, people adapted in the way that they did. Um, for many, that's kind of problematic. Uh, so it's very controversial in the sense of each group is responding in their own way. So natural disasters, I think, you know, in the sense of how do we explain calamity? How do we explain difficulty? You know, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, traditions are always somewhat decent in answering those questions. But then again, the answers are very different. You know, how do we explain suffering? Is suffering always redemptive? Is there always something to bring out of calamity, a silver lining, as it were? Um, so different traditions are reacting differently and pulling from the wells of of their own um, communities as, as, as best they can. 
And, you know, you talked before about, you know, some churches aren't really cooperating with the guidelines. Like there was one church in Louisiana this Sunday that welcomed hundreds of people for those Palm Sunday services. And is it really denominational, political? Are those really the main driving factors as to why some individual churches aren't cooperating? Give me a little bit of a better explanation of that. Yeah, so I think people are actually in the midst of figuring that out right now. Uh, to be honest. And I'm trying to make a lot of my classes at Rutgers as much about these sorts of topics and issues as possible. Um, so like I said the other day in class, we discussed this controversial op-ed that basically argued that there are more important things in life than physical life. Um, you know, the article suggested justice and beauty, and he argued that some sort of sentimentalism has consumed people to such an extent that they're not willing to even visit their grandparents anymore? How long do we leave people in isolation for? Um, so very, very controversial. And so I would say, just in general, um, since say the 1950s or 60s, conflict in America, theological conflict, say within American Christianity, hasn't really happened so much between Catholics and Protestants. I would say it's more between conservative Catholics and liberal Catholics, or conservative Protestants and liberal Protestants. If anything, since the 60s and 70s, liberal Catholics and liberal Protestants have more in common between one another than they do their own sort of brethren in the same tradition, if that makes sense. So conflict itself has been restructured or how academics talk about it is there's a restructuring. So it's not much, it's not so much Protestants versus Catholics. It's more liberal Protestants and liberal Catholics against uh, conservative Catholics, conservative Protestants. Mm -hmm. So, and then it also brings up the question of evangelicalism. Um, all you have to do is look in any New York Times op-ed today, and there's some op-ed about evangelicals. Uh, in the most recent time, I did this in my class the other day, an article came out that basically put the coronavirus on the conservative evangelical community because of its historic ambivalence or outright rejection of certain scientific principles. Um, so it really depends. I would say most often, as far as those who are resisting, uh, will tend to be more on the charismatic side, perhaps more on the evangelical side, perhaps even on the Pentecostal or fundamentalist side. Not to say that all of these things are the same, because they're not. Uh, but if I were to guess, those are going to be the groups that are resisting versus your more mainline denominations, say like Presbyterians or mainline um, or say Methodists versus, say, Baptists or evangelicals of certain types. So it really kind of depends on the example. Uh, but broadly speaking, I would say it would be more of a conservative kind of resistance to federal oversight and federal power, uh, if I were to locate it specifically. So when you say liberal and conservative being a primary divide, you're talking in the political sense. Yeah, and I also mean theological as well. So political... Uh, so liberal, so being a liberal politically also says something about you theologically and spiritually. Um, so as I talk about a little bit, for a more progressive liberal Christian tradition, Jesus is an exemplar. Jesus is someone who le leads by example, uh, someone who's a moral teacher. Uh, but more for the uh, conservative reading, it's more of Jesus' salvation. You know, Jesus died and he rose back up to save humanity. Um, so I think there was a maybe out of context news interview, but someone was interviewing people going to church late at night. And I think someone said something along the lines of, I'm protected by the blood of Jesus, you know, as I'm entering into these spaces. And that tends to be more of a, I would say, Pentecostal evangelical um, sort of acknowledgement versus more of a mainline. So I would say 
it's both indicative or it's indicative of both political in, in investments, but also theological investments as well, as far as how you read the biblical text. And we've seen, you know, some church operations. I know one example would be in South Korea, where the Shanji church was responsible for, I want to say around 4,500 out of the 10,000 or so infections there. And they've been able to keep their outbreak relatively under control. But in the event of one of these churches having an outbreak, do you think there's a risk of potential religious discrimination or stigmatization of a specific church in that sort of scenario? It's not, it's not, it wouldn't be unheard of uh, because right now I think that's how it would be couched. Um, I think depending on the denomination in question, there's a longer narrative that, that conservative uh, Protestant churches and groups tend to articulate, which that, which is that they see themselves as a minority. Uh, They see themselves as a beleaguered kind of discriminated minority. Now that's part of a broader kind of Christian tradition of say, just being a martyr or, living in a kind of an appreciation for martyrs and those who sacrifice, which goes back to the very beginnings of the Christian church itself. Um, so I think that's how it'll be couched. I think if a smart conservative strategist were to come along and say, you know, this is just another instance of the federal government stepping into a place that's not allowed, um, I think people would maybe gather around that. But because this is a virus and not something that you can necessarily, quote unquote, blame on someone, it does involve actual real health issues, obviously. I mean, people are taking pills that they don't really know what they're doing. Um, but in the terms of the freedom of religion question or religious freedom, uh, it's certainly going to be couched that way in the sense of religious communities are going to experience a, quote, undue burden or something along those lines as far as how the Supreme Court would judge an unnecessary expectation put on religious communities of faith. Um, so it's all going to really be about how it's articulated and kind of spun. But we're seeing it right now that states are making decisions to exempt churches. And so the response to that, if you're denied that, is to say, well, you're doing this because you're re- you're discriminating based on religion. So I actually don't really know where it's going to go, but I would not be surprised if what you suggested happens or it gets amped up even more. But we shall see. And to sort of wrap this all up, what kind of long-term challenges does this pandemic potentially pose to Christian institutions in America, if any? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think the same challenges will be experienced by sort of higher education in addition to sort of theological churches across the board. Uh, I think those churches that are struggling are probably going to struggle even more. And I'm not sure about how the finances are going to be collected. Uh, I suspect that you might have some some closures. I think you might have um, some sort of negative things, you know, certainly financially. Uh, but maybe it's also opening up possibilities in the other direction. You know, maybe thinking more broadly about community, more broadly about fellowship. More, um, you know, I have a colleague who goes to a church in the area, and he and his fellow congregation members all meet online, and they play different instruments. And it was really an interesting thing to see. Uh, but at the same time there could be some serious systemic uh, changes as well, uh, whether that means universities that are tied to seminaries uh, might end up experiencing difficulty or, or the churches themselves might end up experiencing some difficulty. So I suspect there'll be some financial constraints and challenges that'll make the livelihoods of a lot of people difficult, uh, not unlike a, perhaps some universities. So I'm certainly hoping for the best. I don't know what's coming and Many are trying to figure that out, I think, right now. Uh, But it's both a very creative moment, but also a very scary moment at the same time.
Thanks, Chris, for getting some insight into how Christianity is dealing with the crisis. Coming up, Hannah Varkey is going to be having an interview with children's music star Lori Berkner. That's all coming your way right here on WRSU-FM, New Brunswick. Welcome back to Night Beat. I'm Joey Block. If you're just tuning in, we've been discussing the latest impacts of the coronavirus on the Rutgers community. Now we're going to shift gears a bit to a Rutgers alumna. Children's music star Lori Berkner has garnered wide appeal among younger audiences for songs like We Are the Dinosaurs and I Know a Chicken. In the midst of a global pandemic, she found herself looking for a way to connect with fans. Hence came the birth of Berkner Breaks. WRSU news reporter Hannah Varkey has more on that for us. You're a talented musician and your song When I Woke Up Today even gets my morning started these days. But for our listeners (laughs) who might not know, might not be familiar with your music, could you just introduce yourself to like who you are, your background and what your music is about? Sure. Um, So my name's Lori Berkner, and I've been working with kids and writing music and creating other kinds of things, books and uh, different kinds of things for kids for 20 plus years now. Um, I started out as a preschool music teacher, and I ended up writing a lot of songs because I was inspired by the kids. And Um, So I try to sort of hold that in what I do at all times, that everything is really inspired by the kids that I'm singing for and with and to. Um, And so, yeah, I have a lot of videos and other things out there for people to check out if they want to find out more about my music. Okay. So could you tell us more about your daily Berkner breaks and how has it been sharing joy and music to individuals in their homes? Sure. Um, So once the um, suggestion to stay at home started, I think it's now been, what's the first day that we started? My birthday was the 15th, 16th, so I think on March 19th. Um, I did, at that point, it seemed pretty clear that lots of families were going to be staying home with their kids and schools were closing all over the country. And um, I was just trying to figure out something I could do to be helpful in that kind of a situation and also keep my own connection to kids and families and to being a musician because my own concerts were starting to get canceled. So um, I did get a lot of suggestions from people. Would you please just get on Facebook or get on Instagram or somewhere and just sing some songs for us. (laughs) And um, so I talked with, I have a, a small team of people who work for me and we talked about it and we thought, well, why don't we do something more than just getting on once? Because this is not, going to end anytime soon. So um, we decided to do something that we thought would be consistent and great for people to be able to know is happening every weekday and get up and be a part of. Um, So we started something called a live Berkner break. And that's because 
my videos when I put them out um, in the last, I guess, five or 10 years, I've started each one with a little, um, like a, a quick jingle that I wrote that's it's time to take a Lori Berkner break and basically encouraging people to just stop what they're doing and enjoy the music and move their bodies um, and feel what they're feeling. And so we are calling these live Berkner breaks and I'm broadcasting them on Facebook at 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. Um, and I guess I've done 12 of them now. Um, and we're getting just an incredibly positive, huge upswelling of response and um, excitement from families and it really feels so good and I think the feeling that knowing that they can get up and either it's 7 a.m. in California <laughs> or 10 a.m. on the east coast or who knows there are people were tuning in today from Singapore and South Africa and Italy and the UK and um, it just feels like amazing to know that they can get up and it feels amazing to me, and I hope it does to them, too. They can get up and know that I'll be there, and I'll sing them some songs or read a book um, that I have some different books that were created out of my songs um, and get their kids moving and um, hopefully connecting and and enjoying themselves um, for, you know, about 20 to 30 minutes in the mornings. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, so one of the stories and, or songs that you had this week was Story of My Feelings. So yeah. How best do you think that we should deal with our feelings, especially during these times when life can seem rough and overwhelming? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I... I mean, one of the things I think that is great about talking about feelings is that it takes us out of our own isolated experience with those feelings so and right now because we are physically distanced from people it feels even more important to me that we're all actually talking about the fact that um, we're having lots of feelings about having to stay home and having so many of our relationships change and our like daily rituals and routines disrupted things plans that we've had I mean especially for kids kids who have birthdays now who can't have their parties can't go to birthday parties can't um, go and hug their grandparents because their own parents are worried about getting them sick and I just feel like not going to school not seeing their teachers um, and then, of course, there are so many kids who actually depend on food at school. I mean, it's just like it's a very obviously it's disruptive for everybody. Um, but I think it's really important for kids to be able to have the feelings that they're having about it and have that be acceptable and and acknowledged and know that they're they're it's normal and that everybody's, you know, in their family, all the people around them still love them and it's okay for them to be angry about all the stuff that's going on. So yeah, it felt really important to me to do that song and story this week in particular. Um, I thought about doing it the very first week, but I'm, I actually am somewhere where I did not have, I, I didn't have that book with me at home. So I had to get it mailed to me so that I could do it the following week, but I'm glad we got to it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think it was really relevant. 
Um, so I, the next question I wanted to ask you is about Rutgers. So like how has your journey as an artist been since Rutgers and has your experiences at Rutgers shaped your perspectives and career in any way? Yeah, I mean, so Rutgers was a while ago for me. Um, and l- lots of things changed along the way, but my starting to, well, first of all, just starting to realize that I could play a guitar in front of people <laughs> happened when I was at Rutgers. Um, there were sort of a lot of different things that came together to put me in the place where I realized I wanted to make music for kids and with kids. And um, one of those things was being a preschool music teacher. But before that, I actually worked at a daycare when I was at Rutgers. I was a psychology major um, and I have I went on to do a lot of my own therapy and a lot of my songs have come out of those therapeutic experiences and kind of thinking about um, the feelings and the psychology behind why we do certain things and why kids do certain things. And again, I really learned to play guitar in front of people when I was in college and I played a lot of um, bars locally in New Brunswick and um, eventually like translated that ability to play that instrument into working with kids. I mean, originally I started with kids on the piano because I had had more formal training in the piano when I was growing up, but I couldn't jump around. I couldn't lie down with the piano (laughs) while I was playing. I couldn't do all the things I wanted the kids to do. And I could see how important it was to model what I want them to be able to also do with their bodies. So the guitar was just a much more friendly instrument in that way for me and more, um, it was more interactive. So I got better at guitar and luckily I'd had that practice when I was in college. Um, and I was scared to do it, but, um, but it turned out to work really well. (laughs) Has, has there been like any interaction or like memorable experience that you've had with your audience members, whether it's during this time or even before that? Oh, sure. I mean, that's a good question. Lots of times. Um, oh, in fact, I'll tell you something that I was thinking about sharing yeah. when I posted, um, sorry, when I read the story of my feelings, actually. Um, so when I I read and sang that song on earlier this week, I found myself starting to feel my own, a lot of my own feelings, a lot of um kind of both joy and sadness at the same time at the end of it. And I realized I was having a memory, which was one of the first times that I performed it live um, was actually four days after 9-11. And I was living in New York City when 9-11 happened. And I had had um, a show that was happening on the weekend after. And I struggled to decide if I should cancel it or not. I thought, are parents going to want to come out with their kids right after this happened? Everyone's so sad. The entire city feels like shut down and in a lot of pain. And I thought, you know, after discussing it, I, I had a couple, I had other musicians playing with me and we all decided let's do it. And, um, 
let's hopefully bring some really like positive energy to these families right now and to ourselves and bring everybody together. So I was hoping that's what would happen. Um, and I was performing um, just to, just basically across the street from my apartment at the time on the Upper West Side. And it felt like home. And I decided to start the show with the story of my feelings. And I came out and started singing. And the first lines of the song are, this is the story of when I cry, when I'm feeling sad, that's when I cry. And it makes me feel better. It makes me feel better. You know, I feel better after I cry. And I sang those words and just started weeping. And I looked out and there were all these parents, there were no seats. Everyone was sitting on the floor. There were maybe 500 people there or something. And kids were in the laps of their parents and people were just hugging each other and crying along with me. And um, I was just one of those times where I felt so connected to the people in the room with me um, in a way that was went much beyond what I usually feel where I'm on stage and people are, um, you know, watching. So that, that was a really special, special experience. And um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I think that's a beautiful experience. Um, and so the next question I wanted to ask you is, if you had any, any advice to us Rutgers students, because we're all children at heart and we love making the most of our time, especially during these hard times. So do you have any advice for us? Hmm. Yeah, I love that you said we're all children at heart <laughs> because I think that is a lot of why I do what I do. I feel very connected to my own sort of inner four-year-old. And um, I guess I would just say <sighs> one thing is that things pass. So this will change. It won't be like this forever. Um, and it's good to remember that and and also take advantage of the things that are positive about this time, like time to look inside, time to be creative, time to find other ways of connecting to people and time to make space for yourself. Um, I also would just say that as a, as you said, that we're all children at heart, I feel like it's really important to listen to that inner child and you can, you might find your creativity by doing that. You might actually discover what the feelings are that are maybe not as obvious or that you're trying to avoid just by kind of listening to that child. And I think if we all pay attention to our own child and treat ourselves the way we would if we were children, you know, I think we're much more forgiving and tender with kids and I think it's a really great time to be that way with ourselves and give ourselves space to have feelings and to make lots of mistakes and kind of make our way through this and as the chancellor of uh, schools in New York City said we're all building the airplane while it's flying right now so it's it's okay to give ourselves a break <laughs> yeah yeah that's very true um, so I guess the last question I wanted to ask you is would you mind singing like a few lines of one of your songs? Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> All right. So this is how I start each of the Berkner breaks. Okay. When I woke up today, I shouted out, hooray. The 
Cause I knew I'd see you and we could sing together. You can sing this with me. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La la la. Welcome to another live Bergner break. <laughs> I'm gonna catch you, you better run. I'm gonna catch you, here I come. I'm gonna catch you, you better run. I'm gonna catch you, here I come. I'm gonna catch you, you better run. I'm gonna catch you, here I come. I'm gonna catch you, you better run. I'm gonna catch you, here I come. I gotcha! My thanks to WRSU News reporter Hannah Varkey for her interview with children's music star Lori Berkner. That about wraps it up for me tonight. Thank you to all of our guests, as well as Chris Sakonis and Caleb Kubright for getting those interviews for us. If you miss out on one of our shows, you can check it out on our website at wrsu.org and follow us on Twitter at WRSU News for the latest updates. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joey Block, and this has been Nightbeat. Coming up, it's more WRSU music programming here on WRSU FM, New Brunswick.